The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Oh, no. I don't like any of this. We're back. Coming in hot, Paul. This is this is the Curbsiders. I'm Matt Watto. You just heard Stuart Brigham. Tonight, we are talking about peripheral arterial disease with an old old friend of mine and Paul's, Dr. Vlad Lachter. And Paul, uh, we're going to get to you here. Tell people, what is it that we do on this show? This is, of course, the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. <laughs> Thanks for that tremendous introduction. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to review clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And we have, as you say, an old friend of both of ours um, and an amazing expert on peripheral arterial disease, Dr. Vlad Lochter, who talks us through a topic that I feel like I've never fully solidified until actually after hearing this episode. So we'll, we'll talk about basic classification, sort of how he dichotomizes between uh, symptomatic PAD and critical limb ischemia what sort of risk factor mitigation we need to do, how to manage medically, the importance of exercise, which I think I don't didn't really fully appreciate until after this episode. So a lot of really high-quality learning tips about a subject that I felt a little bit nebulous on prior to hearing uh, the great Dr. Lockett talk. Yeah, and, and something he said off, off air that I, I just thought would help the audience put this into context, there's a lot of variation in the way this is practiced, and he was telling us that's because interventional radiology, vascular surgery, vascular medicine, cardiology, all these folks have maybe slightly different approaches and different training. And, and that may be why it seems like a little bit of the Wild West. It's not as heavily regulated, especially when you're talking about interventions as something like cardiac catheterization is. So that may be why you're seeing a lot of variation. And Vlad gave us his take on how this is all done. And we really tried to keep it to the very, uh, the very simple things. We didn't touch too much, I think, on controversial areas, or if we did, we pointed them out. Or we'll find out later that we did. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out later. <laughs> so let me tell you about him. So Vlad Lochter is an interventional cardiologist and an assistant professor of medicine at the Lewis Scott School of Medicine at Temple University. Dr. Lochter attended medical school at the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed his internal medicine residency and general cardiology fellowship at Temple. He also did an interventional cardiology fellowship at Temple as well. And then and did, because he's a glutton for punishment, did one more year of training in vascular diagnostics intervention at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is passionate about medical education, as you will hear. You can often see medical students of all years just kind of shouting around the catheterization lab. So without further ado, let's get to it. Stuart. And please stick around because we have a well-padded episode. And he, you know, it actually kind of stuck with me. Um, Vlad, the interventional cardiologist, is actually an impaler. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that, oh, we're still going. <laughs> no, we are. <laughs> Vlad, so glad that you could join us. Please give the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe throw in a hobby or interest outside of medicine. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true pleasure. My name is Vlad Lochter. I'm an interventional cardiologist at Temple University Hospital. I have a, an interest in uh, vascular medicine and intervention. And outside of that, I have three beautiful daughters, twin girls, and then a baby girl that's, that have defined my life outside of work. Uh, and when I'm not with them, I really enjoy tennis, uh, and I try to cook, but I don't do a very good job. <laughs> Excellent. 
What's your favorite thing to cook? Uh, eggs, you know. Eggs, that, that's yeah. that's a good start. <laughs> yeah, I find it extremely difficult, but I've been getting better. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. coming from a Ukrainian family, that's a staple, and uh, you could boil yeah. them and fry them and poach them. And it's kind of hard to screw up eggs. You know, you like I meant to. I do don't that. think that's true, I, Stuart. That's patently <laughs> untrue. It's actually the food they yeah. test chefs with. That's what the chef's cloak actually has a fold for each type of way to prepare. Well, I mean, you could is. just lie and say I meant to scramble them. I think to safely cook them, Stuart, I would totally agree with you. Like to, to, to <laughs> serve someone eggs and not kill them, but to make a good tasting egg uh, is. Yeah, that, I was well, I was surprised the, the to hear that. Chicken makes a good t- tasting egg. Yeah, you just cook it, Vlad. So is that something that like you know when you're courting somebody, like your parents are like, make me an egg, and and then like <laughs> they're like out if they can't make an egg for you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> and then you know more recently I've been making the French toast for my daughters, which they're which that's they good. seem to like, and I think they're the only ones. But they've allowed me to practice more often, so hopefully I'm actually getting better. I, I don't think they're that bad, actually. You know, eggs eggs is my specialty. I would, yeah. That's good. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Everybody has to have one. Yeah, I've, I've worked with you, what, how long now, Vlad? And I don't think I know any of those things about you, which just goes to show what kind of a shallow and superficial person I am. But rather than investigating that, I'm going to ask you for a book recommendation. I am actually almost caught up on my books now. So medical, non-medical, doesn't matter at all. Tell me a book I should read. Yeah, so... Um, the the honest answer is that the the books that I'm reading nowadays are children's books, and I can mm. definitely give you some recommendations for that. I think they're they're going to be uh, you're, you're going to find them fascinating. Um, the the series that that is best is um, is the Roger Hargreaves books, Mister Nosy, uh, and, and so on. They're the best. Mister Nosy is, is the one that my my daughter likes the most. And uh, another another awesome book that I picked up recently is um, called Almost Matters by Eden Weinberg. Uh, another fascinating kid's book. Those are probably the most recent books that I've read, unfortunately, or fortunately. Now, Mr. Nosy resonates yeah, with yeah, me. That yeah. feels good. I think I'll, I'll <laughs> you learn up. a lot from the kid's books, especially the ones that uh, you know teach you the moral. And I guess The the House of God was, was my favorite medical book uh, ever. That's probably the most generic answer that I can give, of course. That's generic, just popular, which yeah. is okay. That's very basic of you. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I I hear that uh, Matt and and Paul were in residency with you. Who gave you the worst advice? <laughs> I want to know, like specifically between those two, who gave you the worst advice? Oh my god! <laughs> I, probably both. A lot of people appreciate what a high quality program we put on, but what they don't know is that there's a huge team behind it, and. The other thing they don't know is that <laughs> that team is largely unpaid labor made up of medical students and residents, and they're fantastic, they're phenomenal, but eventually they graduate, and then they leave us to actually do a real job. And I'm wondering, do you have a plan for this, and what can we do to sort of replace this gigantic hole in our, our staffing structure that is about to come upon us? Fantastic question, Paul, and I'm glad to see that, I mean, actually, I have mixed feelings about the fact that you are no longer threatening to leave, <laughs> but now <laughs> you're making it seem like the whole team is threatening to leave. I mean, we've all talked about it. But Paul, thankfully there's Indeed, and if people are out there are using anything other than Indeed for their hiring, then they're wasting their time because you can hire great people faster with Indeed and only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. That's right, Matt. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. 
So you can do the part you really need faster, meeting and hiring great people to replace, again, the mass exodus of people that are probably coming. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. And with Indeed, there's no long-term contracts, so you can pause your account at any time and only pay for what you need. And with their instant match, you get a list of great candidates with zero weight. Indeed also delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. You want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. That's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We should probably get to a case, Paul. Yeah, no, I think that's probably safest. So, so I'm yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm going to mention. Yeah. Thank you, Stuart. We're going to talk about Mr. Art T. Eries. And I just want to mention that we missed um, the chance to go for a Claude Ecation. <laughs> it was right there. That's his brother. Um, not, <laughs> not bloodline, but. <laughs> Spiritually. Spiritually. But in any case, Mr. Eries is a 72-year-old male. He's presenting with a three-month history of bilateral intermittent leg cramping every time he walks to the grocery store and probably elsewhere. The pain goes from his hips to his feet. He's not been to a doctor in 30 years, so he's unsure of his past medical history. He's not been diagnosed with anything anyway. He says that when he stops walking, his pain significantly improves, but the pain comes back if he begins walking at a brisk pace or if he walks for more than five blocks. He is not taking any medications currently, and he is now retired from a career as a police officer. His family history is significant for a brother, father, and paternal grandfather, all of whom have died of heart attacks. His social history is noteworthy for a 50-pack year smoking history, and he is a current tobacco user and smokes one pack per day. His diet is perhaps not the best, uh, sort of high in saturated fats and microwave meals and high in sodium. The remainder of his review systems is unremarkable. Really, it's just the leg pain he's coming to use to see. His vital signs are significant for a blood pressure of 160 over 90, and his exam is significant for a laterally displaced PMI, which I check for every time he's got hmm. an S4, and an abnormal vascular exam that we will discuss. The vascular exam specifically is he has two plus carotid pulses, no bruise. He's got two plus radial pulses bilaterally. His abdominal exam revealed no palpable pulsatile masses. There were bilateral common femoral artery bruise, which again is something I listen for every time, mm -hmm. um, each and every visit. Popliteal dorsalis pedis and posterior tibial pulses were not palpable. So you get all this information. I think we're, we're painting a clear picture of someone who has underlying vasculopathy, probably. But before we even get there, I think we're going to start basic and just ask you to define peripheral arterial disease for us, since that is the topic of the show and I think the topic of Mr. Eries' issues. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so Mr. Art Eries definitely sounds like our classic patient with risk factors for peripheral artery disease. And I think the most simplistic way to define uh, peripheral artery disease is uh, disease of the peripheral arteries. And uh, that's very creative. <laughs> You know, I, it, it took me a while to think about how I'm going to define that. But it's uh, most commonly is atherosclerotic involvement of peripheral arteries, which cause flow-limiting blockages within the peripheral artery uh, circulation. And peripheral arterial circulation, most commonly when pe people think of PAD, is the lower extremity arteries. So anything in the iliac arteries, femoral popliteal arteries, or below the knee arteries. But of course, PAD also involves other peripheral arteries like the carotid arteries. Uh, and the renal arteries and uh, and the upper extremity arteries. So I would say any atherosclerotic involvement of the peripheral arteries of the body outside of the coronary circulation would qualify as PAD. That's that's the most common type of PAD. 
there are less common types of PAD, which are non-atherosclerotic, and I think are going to be outside of what we're going to be talking about today. So, so Vlad, just a real quick question. What proportion of patients with cardiovascular disease have peripheral arterial disease? Yeah, that's a great question. Patients with cardiovascular disease, you can almost assume that they will have peripheral artery disease. It depends on the study that you look at, but probably about 30 to 50% of all patients with coronary artery disease will have comorbid peripheral artery disease. And it depends on the patient population that you look at, but they're very, very comorbid. And is, it, is that defined as they would have symptoms or that if you did angiography on them, you would find a stenosis of at least a certain degree? You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a good point. It's most, of, most of the patients uh, of, of that 30 to 50% will be asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. So this is taking patients that are asymptomatic uh, and screening them in a formal way if they have coronary artery disease and just looking at a large number of patients that are asymptomatic and screening them for PAD, they will have those percentages. If you actually look at how many patients with coronary artery disease have symptomatic peripheral vascular disease, that's a much lower percentage. And, and I know there are some classifications that you had mentioned um, in, in our correspondence beforehand, the Fontaine and Rutherford. Are those clinically like important for, for us as internists? Like, How would you recommend we think about the the degree or the spectrum of disease with peripheral arterial disease because we were just talking about asymptomatic disease so how do you, how do you think of it on a spectrum so both uh, so there are two main classifications for PAD uh, that are used one is Fontaine and one is Rutherford the most useful way to think about it is to stratify patients as first as whether they have symptoms or not so asymptomatic PAD or not so patients that have Fontaine class one uh, or Rutherford class zero are asymptomatic. Outside of that, patients have symptoms. The secondary split in that classification is to determine if the patients have clodication or critical limb ischemia. And both of these classification sy- systems start with clodication, and as progressive stages increase in both of these classifications, they progress to critical limb ischemia. So, for example, in Fontaine classification, classes one, two A, and two B are clodication. And in Rutherford, uh, classes one, two, and three are clodication. Uh, and everything else is critical in ischemia. So I think it's very important clinically to determine whether or not the patient has uh, clodication, which will put you into one direction of treatment versus if they have critical in ischemia. Fundamentally, clodication is any type of pain uh, that occurs with ambulation, classically in the calves, that resolves with rest. Uh, and that's your typical clodican. So a patient that only has symptoms with ambulation uh, or climb, climbing up steps or some sort of exertion, and then it resolves with rest. Whereas patients with critical limb ischemia are those patients that either have rest pain, uh, so they don't have to ambulate to have their symptoms, or nocturnal pain when they're laying down, ulceration, or gangrene. So rest pain, ulceration, and gangrene are your critical limb ischemia patients. And those are the patients that you really want to pick out quickly because they, they will have significantly higher risk of having a major adverse limb event and have an amputation whereas, versus patients that have claudication are much, much lower, uh, are at much lower risk for limb-threatening ischemia and uh, amputation. I like that. That's a, so it's asymptomatic versus symptomatic. And then if they're symptomatic, you split into the claudication or or uh, critical limb ischemia. That's that's good. I can I can remember that. That's easier I, than the 
then the, the <clears throat> other tables, which I imagine are when, when vascular docs are communicating with each other, they probably know those cold. But for me, I, I think I can remember it the way you just laid it out. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm assuming that part of the, the point of differentiation is that when you reach critical ischemia, then that, that changes urgency, right? That's the point that we're making here. That's that not sounds critical. Sort of take your time. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. If you if you find a patient in clinic who uh, you suspect has peripheral artery disease and you find uh, find out that they have critical ischemia, uh, the urgency of revascularization uh, is much higher. So whereas a per, uh, person who has claudication, you don't necessarily have to revascularize them uh, at all and maybe maybe never. And the standard of care for those patients, as we'll go over in detail, is going to be medical therapy and exercise program. And only if they fail that first line of non-invasive therapy will you even consider vascularization versus critical ischemia. You want to improve blood flow as fast as you can to heal either their ulcer, uh, reduce the, the extent of their gangrene, or heal their rest pain. So, so that's really the main differentiator, whether you're going to send them for surgical or percutaneous revascularization, or if you have a lot of time to try medical therapy uh, and non-invasive therapies uh, for claudicans. It struck me that talking about the history, uh, so with uh, Mr. Eries here, it struck me that it, there this might go be underrecognized or that there might be a delay in diagnosis because sometimes you, you might think this is like a back pain or a radiculopathy. So can you tell us like the classic claudication and then maybe tell us what what's like what are some of the atypical cases that you commonly see and maybe that our audience can look out for as generalists, like to make sure we don't miss until the point where the person has critical limb ischemia. Yeah, Matt, that's that's a really important point. And we see that in clinic quite often that patients will come in with leg pain. And the first thing to differentiate is whether or not you're dealing with a vascular pathology or not, uh, because that will, of course, completely change your uh, treatment strategy and diagnostic strategy. So the most uh, classic descriptions of typical claudication, irregardless of what the symptoms are, is that it's exertional in nature. So uh, if the patient has exertional leg discomfort, and the leg discomfort could be either at the level of the calf, at the level of the foot, or at the level level of the thigh, then that points you to uh, a vascular type of pathology. And typically, patients will develop these symptoms with exertion, and the symptoms will then resolve or significantly improve with rest. That's, that's your typical claudication. And then when you divide it further, the further differentiation is based on weight, which level of the arteries involved. So if the patient has obstruction of the arteries at the level of the superficial femoral artery, the popliteal artery, they will have one set of symptoms versus if they have more proximal disease, either at the level of the aorta or the iliac artery, they will have a different type of uh, symptomatology. And more specifically, if patients have femoral popliteal disease or below-the-knee disease, tibial obstruction, they will have claudication symptoms that are typically described as pain in the calf or pain at the ankle or pain in the foot. They will typically not have any symptoms involving the thigh, the back, the hip, or the buttock. Uh, whereas patients that have symptoms, the, uh, the other symptoms, so if they have thigh symptoms, back symptoms, hip symptoms that are exertional in nature, that's typically aortoiliac disease. And uh, those symptoms are not present with femoral popliteal disease. So that's the classic type of claudication description. So one, is it exertional or not? If it's exertional, it may be vascular. And then if it's vascular, 
do I have thigh, hip, and uh, buttock involvement, in which case it, it may be iliac versus is it sparing those territories and it's only involving the calf, the ankle, and the, the foot, and in which case it's most likely femoral puppeteal or tibial. So those are the typical claudication symptoms. The common culprit that presents as pseudoclodication are, are the pathologies of the back and the sciatic nerve, so any of the neuromuscular pathologies. So Patients will come in and they'll complain of back pain or they'll complain of leg pain or shooting pains down their legs. And it may sound like they're having claudication, but what mainly differentiates it for me is the fact that the symptoms are not exertional. They may be, and, and they're classically positional. So patients will have symptoms in one position, for example, when they're standing upright or standing for a long time. And then if they change the position, and the most classic description of that is that they will be at the store, they will get a car, shopping cart, and they will lean onto the shopping cart, and that relieves their symptoms. That's very atypical of a vascular pathology. It's much more typical of a musculoskeletal pathology because when they lean forward, they open up the space between their vertebra and they relieve the pressure on the nerves that are most likely causing their pain, or they open up the vertebra and uh, they're relieving the pressure on the herniated disc that they have. So mm. if you have positional symptoms, it's very unlikely to be vascular versus if you have exertional symptoms, it's much more likely to be vascular. Hey, Curbsiders. This is Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Have you ever wanted to join a recording of the Curbsiders? Because this year, we can make that a reality. We are promoting our first ever listener pitch contest. Here's how it works. Tell us your episode pitch with a guest suggestion, six questions, and one learning objective. Then send that along to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Our producers will review the pitches and choose the top five that we really enjoy. And then our listeners will make the final decision on Twitter. After all this, you'll get to join us for the recording. We're really excited to see what folks send us, so please come up with your awesome pitches and send them our way. And we hope to have you join us. The deadline for applications for our pitch contest is May 1st, 2021. We look forward to hearing from you. So we gave you a lot of physical examination data. Um, tell me, uh, a lot of which, uh, admittedly, I don't do routinely, though I also, this is not my bread and butter. So can you just talk me through sort of what your physical examination looks like when you suspect claudication? Like how, obviously, the, the pulse examination is going to be critical, but just, just talk us through exactly what your, what your progress is and how it helps you, if you don't mind. Absolutely. One thing that, that I do in all patients that I suspect peripheral vascular disease of the low extremities or, uh, or any uh, vascular bed is I check, first I check blood pressures in both arms. That's something that uh, MAs do routinely uh, for our patients uh, during, the physical, during the initial vital sign assessment. And if there's a discrepancy between the two blood pressures, then I'll usually repeat them to confirm that or not. Because if, uh, if there is a discrepancy and it's real, uh, and especially if the discrepancy is more than 20 millimeters of mercury different between both arms, that will clue me in further that perhaps I will find an abnormality in a different vascular bed as well, maybe a brew in the carotid or a brew in the uh, abdominal aortic examination or an absent pulse somewhere. You know, the difference uh, between the blood pressures is not common, but if it's present, it, it's a valuable si physical sign to look out for. And then in a patient like this who is uh, presenting with multiple risk factors of peripheral artery disease, and uh, is complaining of leg pain, I want to evaluate the vascular system and kind of understand whether or not I can clue myself into, uh, A, are the pulses normal or not? So that's the first step. Are the pulses completely normal or abnormal? And when I say that, 
the pulses in general are graded from zero to three, zero being absent, three being bounding, one being diminished, and two are normal. And the reason that three is important is because if you notice that somebody's pulses are bounding much more impressive than you expect, especially in the popliteal artery area or in the abdominal area, that may mean that there is an aneurysm present. Or you have a very high pulse pressure, for example, from aortic regurgitation, and that is causing your pulses to be bounding. So normal pulses are two, but if you notice that the pulses are zero, completely absent, or very, very bounding, something, something is off. And the pathology could be aneurysm or something, uh, or something different like AR. So that's, the, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking out for in terms of the pulse exam intensity. The next step is to figure out are any of the pulses absent, and then to figure out at what level are they absent. So if you examine the common femorals uh, and the common femoral arteries' uh, pulses are abnormal, uh, and that's the most proximal pulse that you can evaluate, then you're clued into the fact that you're going to likely have a pathology above that level. So if you have a right common femoral artery pulse that's absent, then you have to have either an, an obstruction, stenosis, or an occlusion above that. So either in the aorta or uh, in the iliac artery. It's also important to figure out, are the pulses absent bilaterally or unilaterally? Because if the pulses are absent bilaterally in the common femoral area specifically, then there could be a unifying reason for that, which is an aortic obstruction. Maybe the aorta is obstructed right above the iliac arteries, and that's why both common femoral artery pulses are absent. If one uh, common femoral pulse is present and the other common femoral pulse is absent or reduced, then it's less likely that it's an aortic obstruction. There may be aortic disease, but you may be dealing with a unilateral iliac artery pathology. If the common femoral pulses are normal, then the next pulse to evaluate is the popliteal pulse. That's a more challenging pulse to evaluate in terms of physical exam, and I've always had trouble doing that. That's a resident I remember, and it took me a while to really figure out how to do it. Um, and you know, there are different ways to do it. One is to bend the knee and to put your both of your hands behind the popliteal fossa and press into it and try to find the pulse that way. Uh, I find that the vascular surgeons are very good at that. I was never as good in doing it that way, and I find a, a different way easier, which is you keep the, the leg flat, and you put one hand behind the knee and the other hand on top of the knee joint, and you press down. Uh, and you dig in with the hand underneath the popliteal fossa, and you try to find the popliteal pulse. And I find that that's a much easier way to do it. So if the common femoral pulse is present, but the popliteal pulse is absent or reduced, then that suggests that there is a, uh, there's a blockage or obstruction at the level of the superficial femoral artery. And then you go down to your tibial pulses, the dorsalis pedis and the posterior tibial pulses, um, and that let's say your common femoral is normal, your popliteal artery pulse is normal, but your your uh, dorsalis pedis or tibial pulses are absent or reduced, that tells you that there is a, a presence of peripheral artery disease uh, and the disease is likely below the level of the knee. So those are some of the ways that you can figure out, uh, A, is, uh, is the exam normal or not? And if the exam is not normal, then what is the level of the disease that I'm looking at? So Vlad, let me ask this, something that comes up when I'm talking to students about checking pulses, and this question comes up every time, and then when I try to answer, it's a lot of tap dancing, and then I just avoid eye contact. <laughs> but it always comes up, if the very, if the most distal pulses are perfectly normal, why not just start there, and what's the utility of going more proximally? Like, if you know you've got a good dorsalis pedis and a good tibial pulse, what's the point of having to chase your way all the way up to the femorals if you have a sense that 
you have good flow all the way distally. So help me to answer that question better than I've been doing. <laughs> I suspect your answer is perfect to begin with, but uh, you know the problem is collaterals. The problem for physical examination, and of course, collaterals are, are great for us as humans, uh, but you can have a completely occluded common aorta, let's say, and you, you may have an absent common femoral artery pulse, but you at the same time can have a completely normal popliteal artery pulse, their salospedis and posterior tibial pulse. And the reason for that is there is a lot of collateral circulation in the lower extremity that can compensate for an occlusion or obstruction. So if the iliac artery is occluded at the level of the external iliac, but your internal iliac artery is patent, then the internal iliac will then connect to the profunda and then revascularize the circulation from the common femoral all the way down. So your iliac artery may be occluded, but your common femoral pulse is present, popliteal pulse is present, and the pedal pulses are present. So if you started your physical examination with the feet and you check the the pedal pulses, and you notice that, oh, great, their salus pedis and posterior tibial pulses are two plus. I'm done. There's no peripheral artery disease. You may miss the fact that there's iliac artery obstruction. Now, of course, how would you know that if the femoral artery pulse is normal, the popliteal artery pulse is normal? Your suspicion is really based on the symptoms. If the patient has no symptoms, common femoral pulse is normal, all the distal pulses are normal, you're probably not going to do more interrogation than that. But if the patient has symptoms, that are typical of claudication, and your pulses, your pulse exam is normal or only partially abnormal, another way to kind of clue yourself in is to listen for bruits. Uh, so you may have a normal common ephemeral pulse, but you'll listen, to, you'll listen to it and you'll hear a very loud or harsh bruit. That suggests that there is some uh, disturbance or turbulence to flow that is more proximal, and you may have iliac artery disease. So you really have to examine the all the pulses to make sure that one pulse is absent, but everything else is present because of the collateral circulation. Vlad, this is as much physical exam talk as we've ever done on the show. I don't think I've ever been happy. <laughs> I, I should probably uh, hand over the steering wheel to somebody else though. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk a little bit about recognizing arterial ulcers. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I usually think of venous stasis ulcers. Right. You know, we're used to seeing those people's skin is stretched and they get some weeping wounds on their shins or they get the medial ankle uh, ulcers from venous, venous insufficiency. Where do you see the arterial ulcers? Which ones are most common? The ones that I look for most are the toe ulcers and the, the one that's missed the most, which is the kissing toe ulcers. So the- What do you mean by that? So kissing toe ulcers are the, the ulcers that are in between the toes. So the only way you'll see it, okay. they're on the inner aspect, the medial aspects of the toes. So the only, they're not on the tips. And the only way you'll see it is if you take, let's say, the, the first and second toe and you pull them apart a little bit to look at the, where the webbing is. And you'll notice that there is a pinhole ulcer right there. And that's a physical exam uh, feature that should be done in all patients that are diabetic and all patients that are uh, have a suspicion for peripheral artery disease, because you will otherwise miss it. The common places to see it otherwise are at the tips of the toes, uh, which is the most distal circulation from the area of obstruction. So if you have an obstruction at the level of the, fem uh, of the femoral artery, the toe circulation is the most distal. So the common places I look at are the toes and in between the toes. And I would say that that's, that's probably the, a good place to start. 
Is is the kissing ulcer on in the webbing of the toe, or is it where the two toes are kind of rubbing against each other, where there's like pressure between the the adjacent toes? Yeah, usually it's it's at the areas of, of pressure. It's on the actual toes rather than the webbing. Okay. Yep. Got it. Oh, hence the kissing. I wondered where the kissing was yeah. going. Yeah. I, I, missed I, that I think I've point. maybe have seen those before and not recognized exactly what that was. Um, I've yeah. been using okay. that term for such a long time, and I. Don't think that I came up with that, but I really hope that I didn't. <laughs> I, I hope that you did not. It, <laughs> it's, it's really upsetting. Okay. Well, we've so we've talked we've talked a lot about the physical exam here, Paul. Are we are we ready? What are we ready to move on to next? So I, I, we should probably go all the way back to the patient. I mean, we did talk about some of the physical exam features, but then you actually said fairly early on, Vlad, that this is a patient who has all the right risk factors for peripheral arterial disease. So I, I wonder if we could take a couple steps back and actually talk about what comorbidities that you think about. And, and how that impacts how you actually manage uh, PAD. Sure. Our patient here is a 72-year-old male uh, who is a smoker and has family history of uh, coronary artery disease. Essentially, any of the traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease are fair game for as risk factors for peripheral artery disease. So you think about older male patients, smokers, patients who are diabetic, have hypertension, have history, family history of coronary artery disease. And, uh, and obesity. I would say that those, those are the main uh, risk factors that I think of for peripheral artery disease. And uh, our patient, uh, although since he has not been to a doctor in a long time and is currently unknown to have any uh, of the traditional risk factors such as diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, I suspect that uh, if he was actually evaluated for those things, he may have some or all of those things. But the clear risk factors that he has is the fact that he's an older male uh, smoker and has family history of CAD. All right. So we have Mr. Eries. He is in front of us. He has all the right risk factors for PAD. He's got all the right symptomatology for it. We got an, an exam that feels like slam dunk home run. So I talk us through your workup now. So what, what next? So tell us, let's maybe even pretend, um, dumb yourself down. Maybe that's not the right way to say it, but take yourself back to primary care clinic and talk about what the initial workup would look like. And then maybe what you would do after you get, after you see the initial workup. Uh, in a patient like this, a couple of things I would think of right off the bat. One is I recognize that he has not been to a physician's office in a long time and that he may have some of the risk factors that we spoke about. And first of all, he should get himself screened for diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, because if he has any or all of those risks, uh, treatment of his suspected peripheral artery disease will be focused on modifying all of those risk factors very aggressively. Uh, that would be number one. Number two, I would counsel him about smoking cessation since that is one modifiable risk factor that will significantly impact his overall prognosis from cardiovascular standpoint and from peripheral artery disease standpoint. So th those would be first two things that I would think about and I would speak about. But the next thing is that since we are suspecting peripheral artery disease and he is at risk for it and he's given us a history of claudication. At this point, I think it's appropriate to order a screening test to determine whether or not he actually has uh, PAD. And the most common screening test and the most appropriate test to perform would be ABI, or ankle brachial index. That could be done in a vascular lab in an outpatient setting, or uh, sometimes can actually be done in the clinic itself, depending on your availability of the vascular Doppler and the time. If a person was to perform this test in the clinical setting during the initial visit, uh, you would need to measure brachial blood pressures in both arms and also measure the pressures at the level of the ankle. 
in order to do that, in order to actually measure the pressure at the level of the ankle, you would need a Doppler probe, which you would put over the dorsalis pedis uh, and the posterior tibial and inflate a blood pressure cuff over the ankle, above, this, above uh, the patient's systolic pressure, uh, and then slowly come down, just like you would check blood pressure in the arm. And while you're deflating the blood pressure cuff, your Doppler is on the dorsalis pedis. Uh, and when you hear the first signal of blood flow over the dorsalis pedis pulse, uh, that's your systolic pressure at the level of the dorsalis pedis, and you can repeat that at the level of posterior tibial. So now you have blood pressure measurements in both arms. You have the systolic pressure at the level of the dorsalis pedis, at the level of the posterior tibial. And then the next uh, thing you would have to do is you would take the larger of the two measurements from your blood pressures in the arms, and you would take the larger of the measurements between the posterior tibial and the dorsalis pedis, and you would do a ratio. Uh, let's say your posterior tibial pressure is the highest and your right arm pressure is higher than the left, then you would take the ratio of the systolic pressure uh, of the posterior tibial and divide that by the systolic pressure from the right arm, and that would give you the ankle brachial index. And um, there, are, there are various values uh, that are determined as normal and abnormal. In general, a value of ABI between 1 and 1.4 is normal, um, and anything under 0.9 is abnormal. Um, so that that would be the next uh, the, the next step in evaluation of this patient. Excellent. I just want to point out that my first day on vascular surgery, I walk into the OR and the attending says, "I need you to go get ABIs on these patients." He gave me a list of like five patients, and I looked at him with like this puzzled look, and he's like, "You don't know what ABIs are?" And I said, "Yeah, sure. Why not? I'll figure it out." <laughs> and then you traveled through time to this moment right now. <laughs> I know. I know. I. I yeah, so so I actually uh, pulled up the old dusty book and figured, oh, I, I need the uh, Doppler probe for it. But uh, no, that was that was one of the most. I swear that was the most harrowing day of my med school career. <laughs> did you well, get them the Did you get them the measurements? I did, I did, and uh, I think two of them were abnormal. I, oh, if I remember correctly, and there were a lot of unnecessary surgeries that day. <laughs> <laughs> Vlad, in my experience. A lot of the times, rather than just getting a simple AB, ABI, there's usually some other tests that go with it. Uh, sometimes they'll say PVR, like pulse volume recording or continuous wave Doppler. Can you talk to us, like what are the, what are the common tests that are paired with this and, and why, do, why do we add these extra tests to the ABIs? Like my understanding is the ABI is sort of like a binary, you know, is this normal, is this abnormal? If it's abnormal, then you're gonna start looking to try to localize you know, where the abnormality is, but what do these other tests tell us? That's a great question. Um, the, it's exactly what, it's exactly what you're saying. So ABI itself literally measures the ABI, the level of the ankle. So it tells you if the ABI is abnormal, you have peripheral artery disease. If the ABI is normal, then you may not have peripheral artery disease. And the reason I'm saying may not have it is because you're most likely measuring resting ABI uh, and you're tr if the patient has symptoms, you truly don't know if they have underlying PAD unless you perform an exercise ABI. So that's actually one other thing that could be added to a patient's evaluation if the ABI is normal, but the history is so good and your suspicion, clinical suspicion for underlying mm -hmm. peripheral artery disease is high, uh, then you say to yourself, look, it does not make sense that this ABI is normal in a patient who has every risk factor for PAD and has symptoms of claudication then the next step would be to perform exercise ABI 
which mm. then may become abnormal uh, because the patient outstrips uh, the perfusion that they have at rest uh, with exercise, and uh, that results in a drop in an ABI. That's kind of like the corollary with a myocardial perfusion scan. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In a stress, in a stress test environment, uh, there's always a stress, there is always a resting imaging study of myocardial perfusion and a stress portion of myocardial uh, perfusion. And you may have a completely normal resting scan of myocardial perfusion because at rest, the, there's enough blood flow, even mm -hmm. if a patient has multivessel coronary artery disease, let's say. But as soon as you introduce right. a stress agent like exercise or a vasodilator, all of a sudden you increase the myocardial oxygen demand uh, and you outstrip the heart's ability to provide that uh, and your repeat imaging after the stress agent is abnormal. So it's very similar with exercise ABI and resting ABI. So that's one. So addition of an exercise is sometimes important uh, if there's high clinical suspicion, but sure. a normal resting ABI. The next step is to figure out where, at what level is the disease that you're suspecting, uh, just like you were saying. And what there are a couple of ways to figure that out. So one is, instead of getting just a baseline ABI, which just measure, gives you a value at the level of the ankle, you can actually get indices at the level of the popliteal artery and at the level of the thigh, uh, which would be measurement, blood pressure measurements from the thigh, usually from high thigh low thigh, so there are two thigh measurements at the level of the popliteal artery, and then in, in addition to the traditional ankle uh, mm -hmm. pressure. The reason that the ankle pressure is uh, usually recorded as, uh, as a basic ABI is because that's, that's the most distal pressure that you can obtain in general, uh, except for the toe brachial index, which, we can, uh, which we'll talk about later. But if you truly want to know the level of the disease, and you notice that the pressure in the thigh, the expected pressure in the thigh and the index is normal at the thigh, the index is normal at the popliteal artery, and suddenly abnormal at the level of the ankle, that clues you in that the level of the disease is somewhere between the popliteal artery and the ankle. Whereas if your abnormality is at the level of the thigh, you have a much more proximal disease involvement of the iliac artery. And you would not have known that if you only measured the ankle, uh, ankle brachial pressure because that just tells you there is, there's a pressure drop mm -hmm. at some level. So that's, uh, that's one, uh, which is increasing the, the levels of measurement of ABI. And just like you said, Matt, the next step would be to get a pulse volume recording. That's another way to determine the level of the disease. And the pulse volume recording um, is a visual demonstration of arterial blood flow at a level where the PVR is being recorded. A blood pressure cuff is placed over uh, the, the level that you're recording, and it's usually the same levels, which is high thigh, low thigh, um, popliteal artery, and the ankle, uh, and a, a waveform of blood flow is recorded onto, onto the paper. And there's a, it's a typical waveform that is normal, which looks very similar to the aortic, invasive aortic pressure, if you looked at it. So there's a very brisk upstroke, there's the, the carotid notch, and there's a slower downstroke. As the disease, uh, as there is atherosclerotic involvement of the artery over which PVR is being recorded, there are cha expected changes that take place of that PVR waveform. So usually what happens first is that the, the carotid notch goes away, uh, and then the amplitude of the PVR waveform goes down. So what you're trying to do is, uh, is to, to see, is the PVR, norm is the PVR recording normal uh, at the level, uh, at the arterial level that I'm evaluating? So 
if your PVR waveform is normal at the thigh level and then suddenly becomes abnormal at the popliteal artery level, then the disease process may be at the level of the femoral artery. Uh, versus if the, P if the PVR waveform is dampened at the thigh level, then again, that clues you in that maybe the disease process is starting more proximally at the iliac artery level. So essentially, addition of PVR and the more extensive index assessment uh, is a way to determine the level of the disease once you already figure mm -hmm. out that peripheral artery disease is present. So can I ask, but how, not to put too fine a point on it, like how is that helpful? If, so if you have someone who does not have critical limb ischemia, so you, you, you know, you've established this peripheral arterial disease, you're not in the realm of critical limb ischemia. And I think earlier, and we'll talk more about management, but you mentioned that the management is primarily going to be risk factor modification and maybe, you know, there's not going to be, it's going to be medical initially, and we're not really going to be doing any sort of surgical planning, I guess. Does knowing the specific level of disease help you manage these patients initially at all, or is this more to kind of plan further down the line, or is this risk stratify? How is this useful this early in the workup? In general, uh, the answer is you do not need to know that information. All, oh, great. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And uh, in my practice, I get uh, in patients that have, that I suspect who have peripheral artery disease based on their symptoms, but who do not have critical ischemia, really all I want to know is what are their modifiable risk factors mm -hmm. uh, and treat them aggressively, and then do they have peripheral artery disease causing their symptoms with an ABI? And if their ABI is abnormal, and they have claudication symptoms, then my first level of management is non-invasive, and I really don't need to know if the blockage is at the level of the iliac artery or at the level of the femoral artery, because it, as you said, it will not change my management. So usually, I would get the PVR assessment and any other more advanced imaging assessment only after uh, I decide, look, this patient has failed the initial management, uh, conservative management, and may need some sort of revascularization, at that point, it becomes very important at which level the disease involvement is. And then you have to figure out, is it femoral popliteal? Is it iliofemoral? Is it aortic? Is it predominantly below the knee? Because that will completely change the landscape of how you will approach the patient's revascularization strategy. So, um, so it, it's, it's a great point. You do not need to know the level of disease until you're ready to uh, think about revascularization. Okay. So for our guy... I was going to say for our guy, he, if his ABI was normal, we would be, we're so suspicious because this guy has all the risk factors, his exam's abnormal. We'd probably put him on a treadmill and repeat the ABI. And then, and probably that would be an abnormal test. Yep. Absolutely. And then we could proceed. We don't have to do the sequential pressures or the pulse, uh, the PVRs. We could, uh, we could just give him a trial of medical therapy, aggressively treat his risk factors, and uh, we could do that up front. And then probably until we were ready to send him to you because we think mm -hmm. he needs a procedure, we don't really have to do all that advanced testing. Yes. I think from the testing standpoint, that that's that's all you would do. And he ha we have the benefit of knowing that his uh, peripheral uh, exam is nor uh, abnormal, that his common femoral pulses are absent and his tibial pulses are diminished. So if his ABI was normal, I would definitely put him on a treadmill. I suspect given his uh, reduced pedal pulses, we will find that ABI will be abnormal in his particular case, but uh, I've been surprised before. One mm -hmm. additional point that I would make uh, is that when you're, you're evaluating the patient in clinic and you're ordering an ABI in addition to medical therapy, and maybe it's a good time to talk about it now, another very important step uh, in the management of this patient in addition to medical therapy would be an exercise program. Uh, so the patient may not need revascularization at this time, 
but exercise program uh, is something that, that is critical to the management of the patients and is recommended by the guidelines. Can you talk about the structure of that? Because I, I think it's not specifically a it's it's not specifically like a home exercise program, right? There's there's some sort of uh, in the wasn't there a, a landmark trial that that looked at this? The name of it, which <laughs> is escaping me. You you can't remember the name. I, I think it's a clever name, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Just absolutely brutal. Sorry about it. I love puns. <laughs> Um, no, absolutely. Is that, the, is that the name of the trial? Clever? Uh, you know, it. you hit it right in the head. <laughs> I regret to inform you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is absolutely the name of the trial. Yeah, so that was one of the earlier trials that showed that you really don't need to rush into revascularization, even if you know that patient has significant uh, peripheral artery disease and they have symptoms. So in that particular trial, patients that were enrolled had aortoiliac disease. Uh, so they either had obstructive atherosclerotic involvement of either the aorta or the iliac arteries, just like our patient is suspected to have, and they had claudication. So these were not patients with critical limb ischemia. And these patients were then randomized to three arms, uh, which was medical therapy alone, medical therapy plus a structured exercise program, or medical therapy with revascularization. And what was very interesting about the trial is that patients who were in the exercise program arm did just as well as those who underwent revascularization. The only incremental benefit of revascularization uh, that was realized is that there was some uh, incremental reduction in patient symptoms, uh, but there was certainly no change in terms of patients' adverse events or amputation rates, which, which basically showed that uh, if you exercise patients uh, and you you establish good medical therapy, you instruct them to exercise, that is a very good starting point rather than directing them directly to revascularization. Matt, to your point, there are different ways to exercise a patient. And one is to send them to a dedicated structured exercise program, which is basically like a physical therapy type office situation where patients attend in an outpatient setting uh, and they have a very specific exercise regimen that they attend at least three times a week uh, for about 12 weeks. And that's that's a trial of that wow. should be given to patients before revascularization is considered. And Vlad, just to interrupt for a sec, that seems kind of like the cardiac rehab model, which I think is similar three times a week for 12 weeks, similar time frame. It's it's particularly meant for patients you know, with cardiac issues. I just wanted to pull Paul and Stuart, have either of you guys ever sent anybody specifically to a structured exercise program for Peripheral arterial disease, is that something that we know exists, is easily accessible for our patients? Definitely not during COVID. <laughs> right. Even under optimal circumstances, it's not something that I've, I've taken yeah. much advantage of. Like, I think I had some vague awareness that it existed, but it was not, you know, mm. it's, yeah, I think we're so medically minded. Um, right. It's not something I thought of. So, Vlad, yeah. should we ask our friendly neighborhood uh, interventionalist or vascular doctor, what do you recommend? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, really important. I Every patient that I see who has peripheral artery disease, that is formally diagnosed who has symptomatic PAD and claudication symptoms, every patient of mine, I institute a medical therapy uh, program and then advise them to either attend a structured exercise program or uh, give them a self-directed exercise program if they don't want to or can't attend an outpatient facility. And I've had patients who were significantly symptomatic at the baseline when I first met them and institution of those two interventions made rendered them completely asymptomatic, and they did not require uh, any further vascularization. 
So that is, uh, th those are really the staples of treatment of PAD uh, for claudication and should be tried first in every patient before anything more aggressive is considered. Is there a specific handout that you give, like specific instructions maybe we could either share with our audience or just include in our show notes? Yeah, so we have uh, we have that as part of our electronic medical record that gets printed out, and I hand that to the patients. And you know, if the patients don't attend uh, an exercise program, what I usually tell them to do as a self-directed home-based program is to go outside uh, and uh, walk for about thirty to forty-five minutes, at least three times a week if they can. And they walk essentially to the point where they experience moderate claudication symptoms, and at that point they can no longer walk, they stop and they rest. They rest until their symptoms improve to the point where they can start walking again, and then they walk again until they once again reach their symptoms, at which point they have to stop. And they repeat this loop of exercise followed by claudication, followed by perseverance for 30 to 45 minutes. And the thought behind why that's effective, there are probably many, but one is that there's a concept of ischemic preconditioning, which is that you may be ischemic uh, because you have a blood flow limitation, uh, but you're training your muscles to uh, to work better under more ischemic uh, environment. Mm. The other thing that we think that happens in the low extremity circulation is that you may develop more collateral circulation as you exercise, and that collateral circulation reduces your symptoms over time. All right, so let's bring it back to our patient. Mr. Eries, he comes back to your office in the interval, he's been diagnosed with high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia. He's got it all. He's got all the, the vascular risk factors, but we intervened on those things. And he's now taking lisinopril, 20 milligrams, is now normotensive. He is adherent with a statin, no statin myalgias. He has no issues with it at all. He started metformin twice daily for his diabetes, which was not out of control, but certainly worth working on. And he, he had a, <laughs> a, a come-to-Jesus moment. He has uh, quit tobacco, cold turkey. He's not touched a cigarette since he made the diagnosis. He has done everything that we could have asked of him and more. And he's completely on board with an exercise program. He's, he's ready to run out the door if he's able to. So we have, we have all the enthusiasm, we have all the, the risk factor modification, and we have patient buy-in. But probably we should also talk, are there any other medications we should be adding to this patient's regimen, or what, are, what sort of evidence-based medical therapy can we do to, to help ameliorate his symptoms? Great question, Paul. Um, so all patients with uh, confirmed peripheral artery disease should be on a low-dose aspirin, 81 milligrams. Uh, that will reduce patients' uh, adverse events, uh, and not only adverse limb events like amputation rates, but also will reduce their risk of uh, adverse cardiovascular events like uh, heart attack and stroke. This gentleman should be on a high-potency statin, which is either atorvastatin 80 milligrams or rosuvastatin 40 milligrams if the patient's tolerated. Uh, so, and then there's a PAD-specific medication called silostazole which has specifically been approved to increase the walking distance in patients with peripheral artery disease. Real question about uh, the statins. Is that irrespective of what their pretreatment LDL is? Yes. Uh, patients with uh, symptomatic peripheral artery disease, even if their LDL is 70, I would put them on high-potency statin, irregardless. Because you're in secondary prevention land at that point, right? Like At least according to the ACC guidelines, those are the patients who weren't high-dose statins because they've already have established ASCVD. Exactly. And PAD is essentially a CAD equivalent, so um, high-potency right. statin at that point. So in terms of silostazole, uh, it's a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, and the medication has been shown to increase the walking distance in patients who have claudication. So you may not 
dramatically increase the walking distance. But for some patients who may not be extremely active in the outpatient setting to begin with, that additional use of psilocytosol can improve their lifestyle and may avoid revascularization down the line. So with celastazole, I think just to point out to the audience, this is a, for patients with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, or just bad heart failure, I think it's contraindicated. I don't exactly know why, but I've seen that pop up when you read about it. Is that something that you put a lot of stock in, Vlad? Uh, Definitely. It's, It's contraindicated in patients with heart failure. If patients are in active heart failure, meaning that they have their functional class three symptoms, Certainly, if they have functional class four symptoms, whether they have a reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction, I would not start this medication. Most patients usually are not in significant heart failure syndrome uh, at the time of their evaluation, at least in my clinic, and I am able to start the medication. Then there are some other side effects like headache, diarrhea, sometimes palpitations that patients experience. There's one trial that showed that those um, symptoms happen as as many as 20% of patients. But I'll tell you that I've prescribed uh, psilocyzole to many patients before, and really this discontinuation rate is not that high. And then who, who gets the dual antiplatelet therapy? I feel like it's, it's always a kind of a mystery to me. The patients will show up in my office, and suddenly they're on clopidogrel, and I don't quite understand who's, who's chosen for that. So I, reading through, it looks like someone who's, quote, high risk, but who's high risk, and how do you choose who, who warrants dual antiplatelet versus low-dose aspirin alone? Yeah, that's, that's always a good question, and uh, I think there's a lot of... Uh, confusion about this topic because uh, patients with coronary artery disease will frequently be on dual antiplatelet therapy. So a uh, so similar question comes up with significant peripheral artery disease. I think as a general statement, dual antiplatelet therapy is not indicated for most patients with peripheral artery disease of the lower extremities. There is a trial called the CHARISMA trial, which looked at addition of dual antiplatelet therapy for high-risk individuals or patients who have previously undergone revascularization of their lower extremities, where it seems that addition of dual therapy does reduce uh, the long-term major adverse cardiac and limb events. But uh, in my patients, if a patient has undergone revascularization one time, even if they've had stenting of their lower extremities, I will place them on dual therapy for about 30 days after their vascularization, whether you stent or not. And then typically I will stop their P2Y12 inhibitor, whether it's Plavix or another agent. But if a patient has had multiple prior interventions, maybe they had low extremity bypass, maybe they've had critical limb ischemia in the past, those are the patients who I would consider doing therapy for long-term. So it's 30 days after after a revascularization, whether it's like, does that mean if it's surgical or endovascular, you would dual antiplatelet for 30 days, regardless of the level, and then after that, uh, they might just go to aspirin. But if they have, you said, uh, if they're having really bad ischemia, despite, you you might put this on chronically. Exactly. And as, as you can see, there's really, the guidelines are fairly vague, uh, and they define it based on high-risk individuals um, or those that have had revascularization in the past. And I think that there's a lot of variation from uh, practitioner to practitioner as to who places and do antiplatelet therapy right off the bat after vascularization and ongoing for the lifetime of the patient, or like myself, if I intervene once uh, and the patient may not need another intervention, I just do it for 30 days. But uh, in all honesty, if, if I intervene on the same patient multiple times, so they have restenosis um, or they have critical ischemia, then that gives me the, the kind of the second hit. 
um, then I would consider doing the therapy for longer periods of time or maybe indefinitely. Mm. There was the was it the Voyager pad trial? Jeez, Paul, you I, I hate all this so much. <laughs> <laughs> this is a river oxaban in peripheral arterial disease. It was like a 2020 uh, New England Journal study. I, I don't know. I like I wasn't aware of this trial before prepping for this, but this was like a very low dose, like 2.5 of river oxaban twice a day plus aspirin, and then there was a little bit of extra bleeding. Uh, if but t- tell us about this, Vlad. Was this practice changing for someone who does this for a living? Yeah, uh, that I get that question quite a bit. The whole question about uh, whether anticoagulation therapy should be considered in patients who uh, have peripheral artery disease and otherwise do not have an indication for anticoagulant, like a Fib or DVT, comes up quite a bit. In my practice, I have not adopted low-dose rivaroxaban for these patients. I think the results of the Voyager trial are provocative. And I think there's more, you know, I would like to see more data come out on that. Voyager trial enrolled patients with PAD who have had revascularization. So all these patients underwent revascularization. So seemingly the highest risk patients with PAD rather than those that are asymptomatic or only have collocation without prior intervention. And in those patients, there there seemed to be an improvement uh, in their primary endpoint, which, which included acute limb ischemia, major amputation, MI, ischemic stroke, but it was at the expense of higher rates of bleeding. So that's always kind of the, the balance of trying to reduce the long-term major adverse limb and cardiovascular events by either introducing a dual antipolyate agent indefinitely or adding a, an agent like uh, rivaroxaban, but then always having that outweighed or potentially balanced out by the risk of bleeding. So it, it's always hard to determine the net clinical benefit. Will the patient Is the patient at high risk of bleeding or is the patient at high risk of having a major adverse limb event. So I'm not completely convinced one way or the other yet. And uh, so I do not generally prescribe that, but that's that's something that may change over time. So it sounds like for right now, as far as your practice, not really, these patients are not getting anticoagulation, whether it's where there's warfarin or the, the newer agents, and it's mostly either single or dual antiplatelet therapy right now. Yes. And in fact, the, the Voyager specifically looked at uh, rivaroxaban. There is a trial that looked at warfarin in addition to a, uh, an antiplatelet agent and compared uh, warfarin with an antiplatelet agent versus antiplatelet agent alone. And that trial is already more than 10 years. It's called the WAVE trial. And in that trial, there was significant increase in the risk of life-threatening bleeding in the, in the group of patients that have warfarin without any major improvement in major adverse limb events. So warfarin in general is not indicated. Of course, in that trial, they, they targeted the INR to two to three. You can imagine that the situation maybe if they targeted a lower INR level, perhaps there would be less bleeding events and maybe it would have been safer. But similar, you know, with the Voyager, uh, they used a very low dose rivaroxaban where the bleeding events were still low, mm-hmm. low enough to consider it. So I think I, I would not consider using warfarin, and if I, I would consider uh, an agent like rivaroxaban or uh, it, if data comes out for a different NOAC, but not yet. Paul, it's been it's been a pleasure to just watch as he's naming these trials. Just watch uh, the Charisma trial. Really, I could yeah. tell that really was a, a sucker punch, right? <laughs> that was the one that broke Paul me. didn't. Yeah, Paul did I, not like that one. Uh, oh, Vlad, but thank you yeah, for I mentioning wasn't ready it. For it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just had to brace myself sometimes, and I just, that one caught me by surprise. I'm sorry. 
So Mr. Eries, he's our dream patient. He's, he's now exercised. I mean, he did it four times a week. Um, he would do it uh, until tears ran down his face. It, it wouldn't stop him. But and despite this, he's better. Um, but his claudication walking free distance has increased from 100 feet to 130 feet. But he's still having symptoms that are limiting um, his lifestyle. He still feels that he's not where he would like to be in terms of um, his baseline activity level. So what, what next? And I guess sort of more broadly, I th- it sounds like he's heading towards um, a more aggressive intervention. So, so what, what can we do for Mr. Eries? And then who actually, how do we think about sort of um, revascularization in general? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, um, you know, Mr. Eries kind of followed the typical trajectory of somebody who has significant peripheral artery disease, was very symptomatic at the beginning, in whom conservative treatment with medical therapy and excess program was, was attempted. And he continues to have symptoms despite, uh, despite all these interventions, and the symptoms are lifestyle limiting for him. I think one key thing to note is that patients may have symptoms, but they may not be lifestyle limiting. So even if they still have symptoms despite all these interventions, but they're not lifestyle limiting because they don't get out of the house too much or they're wheelchair bound, they get up once a day and that's when they have symptoms. Even in that situation, if they have symptoms, you probably don't have to do anything. But in somebody who is active or would like to be more active, like Mr. Eries, in that case, attempt at revascularization is at this point, appropriate. So since we're thinking about revascularization, before you decide what kind of strategy to select, whether surgical or endovascular, is where you have to understand what is the level of disease and definitively confirm, is the disease at the level of the aorta? Is the disease at the level of the iliac? Or does he have multi-level disease? Maybe he has an occluded aorta, and maybe he has superficial femoral artery occlusion on one or both sides, which will inevitably change the type of revascularization that he would receive. So uh, so for Mr. Eries, he would require more imaging, and that imaging modality would then tell us what level of disease he has. In, in, in terms of the imaging modalities that I prefer, in a patient like this in whom I'm suspecting iliac artery or aortic disease, I would usually obtain a, a CT angiography of the abdomen and pelvis. Um, and uh, that usually gives you a very good understanding of, uh, of the anatomy. Of course, there's limitations to that, uh, to the study. If there's significant calcification of the atherosclerotic plaque, that may get in the way of understanding exactly how severe the lesion is because uh, calcium created blooming artifacts or just make the lesion appear more severe than it is. But in most patients I find who have iliac disease and I order CT angi- angiograms, they tend to be very helpful in understanding. So if we were to perform uh, CT angiogram or a different angiogram. It de- doesn't have to be CT. It could be MR angiogram, or it can even be an invasive angiogram. I just tend to go for CT angiography because it's easier to obtain in our center. Uh, and I confirmed that he had iliac obstruction. Uh, at that point, revascularization would be indicated, and the type of revascularization would really depend on his risk factors and, to some extent, his preferences. And I think over time, endovascular revascularization techniques have become much more advanced, and we can now approach uh, many different lesion types, including aortic disease and uh, aortoiliac disease with endovascular approach, but certainly aortofemoral bypass, if the only issue was bilateral iliac disease or obstructed aorta, would also be very reasonable and has very good out- long-term outcomes. So I think that's something that would have to be both uh, endovascular and surgical options are typically considered, and based on either the patient preference, risk factors for surgery, or anatomical lesion location, one, uh, you know, one path or the other path is selected. Paul, are we at a point for take-home points here? 
Yeah, well, we fixed Mr. Mr. Erie, so that's, let's let's end with the happy ending. So he got his um, endovascular treatment. He's now just doing cartwheels down the hallway and is eternally grateful, and, and everyone's very happy. So having said that, um, now why don't we ask uh, the great Dr. Lochter, what take-home points do you have for our listeners? Yeah, so I think the main take-home points uh, are that in any patient who has suspected peripheral artery disease, you have to screen them for other risk factors, especially if they have not been diagnosed. If you're seeing a patient with suspected PAD who has no other medical history, it's always very suspicious to me because usually PAD is not the first medical problem that the patient will have. So I think anybody with suspected PAD should be screened for risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. Um, So that's number one. If the patient has suspected PAD and are smoking, smoking cessation is a very important strategy to reduce the overall uh, cardiovascular risk and reduce their overall adverse outcomes related to their lower extremity disease. The next uh, take-home point is that if the patient has confirmed peripheral artery disease, the first step in management of those patients is conservative therapy. And the conservative therapy is risk factor modification, smoke and cessation, PAD-specific therapies like aspirin, high-potency statin, and consideration of psilocizole, in addition to an exercise program, which can either be performed in an outpatient setting or could be performed as a self-directed program. And then finally, if patients have symptomatic PAD that is lifestyle limiting, despite attempts at risk factor modification conservative therapy, then revascularization can be considered. And in those cases, further imaging should be performed, like getting PVR assessment, arterial duplex, CT angiography, MR angiography, or invasive angiography to determine exactly where the level of the disease is so that you can plan your uh, revascularization strategy. And I guess the last thing is just to say that patients who have lotication, it's very important to distinguish those patients from those patients who have critical ischemia. Just to review, it's, it's those patients who either have rest pain, ulceration, or advanced gangrene. Because for those patients who have uh, critical ischemia in any of the symptoms that I just named, uh, for them revascularization is the, is the next step in management uh, and has to be considered right away as opposed to clodication where all the other strategies have to be tried first. So I think those are the main take-home points. Look between the toes. And look between the toes for the kissing ulcers. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Peaceful. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Now that's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Jake Kaiserman and Paul Williams and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganoff on the website, and Chris the Chu Manchu on Facebook. Don't worry, I was not going to forget Tima Karganoff. Thank you for changing the script right in front of me. Until next time. I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And as a reminder, this and most of our recent episodes are available at curbsiders.vcohealth.org. You can claim free CME credit. That's all healthcare professionals can claim free CME credit thanks to our partner, VCU Health. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. <laughs> and we should thank Stuart for composing our amazing theme music that you're doubtless hearing now. We should also thank Claire Morgan, also amazing, at Notterly, who edits our audio. 
And I remain, as always, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Did you know goodbye is a uh, variation of God be with you in Old English? I did not. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Now you know. So, uh, yeah. So in that case, like the shorthand of good comes from God in goodbye. It's interesting. Yeah. All right. Lessons in etymology from Stuart Brigham.